Hello and welcome to African Jopadi. My name is Ife and I'm recording from Creole. Today, we have an important guest with us to speak about the impact of Russia's war in Ukraine to Africa's global ambitions for partnership. Lizzo Novodron is a senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, ISS. She's the, she's the editor of the ISS monthly publication on the African Union Peace and Security Council, the PSC report, and project leader for South Africa. She's also a non-executive member of In Transformation Initiative, a South African not-for-profit organization focused on peacemaking. Lizzo has, has traveled and worked in many countries in Africa over the past 25 years. These include Ethiopia, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Rwanda, Senegal, Mali, Côte d'Ivoire, Morocco, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. He is a regular commentator on African issues in local and international media. Her latest research includes coordination, key to the sources of African solutions for Mozambique, ISS policy brief, April, 2022. Leading through consensus, South Africa chairs the AU, ISS policy brief, December, 2019. Fair elections, key to stability in Mozambique, ISS Southern Africa report, 19 September, 2019. Power and issue, identifying champion of change in SADC ISS policy brief, 19 April, 2019. Meaning of Morocco's return to the AU, ISS North Africa report, January, 2018. And can South Africa regain its gravitas in Africa? Security Institute for Governance and Leadership in Africa, University of Stellenbosch, policy paper 2017. Her book on South Africa, foreign policy, South Africa in Africa, superpower or neocolonialist was published by Talfer Berg in 2016. Lizzo has a master's degree in political science from the University of Pretoria, she was awarded the title of Chevalier de Lure, National de Merit by French President Emmanuel Macron in 2019. I mean, you cannot but agree with me that we have the best person to speak to us about this topic, especially, and I need to add, take into account that in April, she also published um, an article titled Could Russia's War in Ukraine Derail Africa's Global Partnership. I mean, thank you so much, Lisa, for, for being here with us. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. And so I think I can go in directly to ask you, I mean, what is the impact of Russia's war in Ukraine to Africa's global partnership? Is there any impact? I mean, what is it if there are? Yes, yeah, sure. Lots of impact, uh, definitely. Just like, you know, the, the impact of sanctions against Russia and then um, the, the global reconfiguration, I would say, um, uh, caused by, by this war in Ukraine. 
has had on many levels. Firstly, I think the most dramatic would be the economic impact um, and the scarcity of certain foodstuffs that um, African countries are importing from Ukraine and from Russia. So that's one, uh, the disruption of uh, global value chains and so on caused by this war. So, um, but what my article was really about also is Africa's um, diplomatic relations, notably our relations with uh, Russia uh, and with Europe, which obviously uh, is, is dramatically affected. And then um, I think on a broader scale, in terms of the United Nations, you know, Africa has been divided over this issue in voting in the United Nations. So um, it calls into question somehow African solidarity, although, you know, um, I think we can discuss that. Um, African, perhaps not African solidarity, but uh, common positions. Um, and whether the African Union actually can speak for Africa. Do we speak with one voice? Or is that too much to ask in a way when it comes to a global issue like the war in Ukraine? Well, thank you so much. The points that you raised are ones that obviously requires us to delve into it a bit further. And so I'd like to ask you, a question relating to the EU, for example, which you mentioned in terms of the diplomatic relations. How exactly, even though we know, based on what you've said, it's not consistent in terms of how we're voting on these issues. How exactly is Africa's position, or should I say the position of select African countries in the war in Ukraine affect their relations with the EU? Yes, it certainly uh, affects it on many levels. So first of all, the African Union uh, Commission in Addis Ababa itself has been in uh, many meetings, summit meetings, etc., with the EU. So um, it is one continental organization to another, which sort of justifies in that way that um, you know, the AU Commission Chairperson, Musa Faki Muhammad, would be the person speaking on behalf of the continent, because this is not one country speaking to one European country or to China or to the US, but basically a continental part, continent to continent partnership. And uh, actually, after many years, for the first time in five years, there was actually um, a meeting again earlier this year in Brussels between the AU and the EU. And a number of agreements were signed and discussions very at a very high level were held around how uh, Africa and Europe and AU and the EU can partner on issues such as climate change, migration, um, greater economic development, trade, etc. But then the war in Ukraine uh, broke out. And so, first of all, we know that the Europeans, their attention and their funding and so on is going to be, to a great extent, turned towards this war in Ukraine, supporting Ukraine and, you know, um, uh, trying to navigate the economic impacts as well on European countries. So, in a way, um, the attention uh, on the short term would be diverted, I would say, from 
all these many uh, promises that were really made around cooperation. But on a deeper level, um, especially when it comes to certain countries that have not um, voted with Europe uh, in condemning, uh, you know, Russia's invasion, there is a sense from certain European countries that um, it's almost seen as being disloyal or that African countries who want to be non-aligned or neutral are um, in a way, um, I would say almost unthankful for all the European aid that it has been uh, giving to Africa after all, you know, all these decades. Yeah. Of course, we know it's a complex relationship. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And I guess that also plays to the next question, especially how you ended in terms of the aid element and seemingly not being appreciative. The question then is whether we can be more explicit, especially, and I've seen this and some interviews where people actually say, oh, the price of bread is so high is because of the war in Ukraine, for example, or, or the conflict with Russia. So I wondered if you can sort of provide any specific um, clarification on how the war in, in, in Ukraine poses a threat to Africa's food security. Are there examples of how we're already seeing this affecting the food security in the continent? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, it's not necessarily, I think, um, aid being cut. We haven't seen that yet. And as I said, that's quite controversial because, you know, of the colonial relationship between Europe and Africa and so on. But the direct impact of uh, shortages of, let's say, the exports of, of grain, as you say, um, food prices going up. Countries like Nigeria that are to a large, well, that are one of the countries that are reliant on imports from, from Russia and Ukraine. I think that was a wake-up call to many of us, uh, you know, to what extent Ukraine actually exports to the biggest uh, recipient of um, uh, grain from uh, Ukraine is is Egypt. Interestingly enough, uh, several countries in the Horn of Africa, countries like Senegal, for example, um, the wheat, you know, comes from Ukraine and then also Russia. Um, and generally, yes, the disruption of, as I said, value chains um, uh, that is affecting a lot of the, the foodstuffs. And as I said in my article, ironically, the African Union is now speaking, the, the, has decided that 2022 will be themed on, on food security and being sufficient. Because, of course, your next question will be, now, how, how do we navigate that? But it seems uh, just another reminder. And COVID-19 was the first reminder, I think, that we should invest more in local agriculture, uh, local transformation of our um, own agricultural products. I mean, it almost goes without saying, but it is yet again. And in some countries, I've seen some announcements by governments that um, they should substitute, you know, let's say wheat with um, sorghum or other um, grains that are locally produced. But that that has also been tried in some countries, I think. And it's very, very difficult to change people's eating habits if they have 
for so long been used to eating certain staple foods. Now you're saying, okay, now they should switch to something else. It might happen. It might work in some countries, but not in others, actually. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, I mean, it's been quite glaring to see how dependent the continent of Africa are in terms of wheat, for example, or the grain mm. from Russia and, and, and Ukraine. And so, but at the same time, we can say that we know the potential of so many African countries to produce these things. So could there be positive, especially in relation to the food security or the grain aspect of things we're talking about? Could there be potential for other African countries to wake up and, you know, maybe take over this slack that we now see, you know, this gap that we're seeing? Could this negative end up becoming a positive for select countries on the continent? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it has to happen. And we do now have the continental, African continental free trade area that was launched in 2018. We have the AFCFTA secretariat in Ghana, which um, should be able to facilitate also greater intra-African trade, because we know that that is one of the obstacles also as countries literally producing more or less the same thing, the same things, and then exporting them to Europe or elsewhere, China, instead of looking at the continent's uh, self-reliance when it comes to food, um, you know, uh, consumer goods. So uh, uh, the African Union has tried um, for many years now to try and promote, you know, um, ease of, of trade amongst African countries, because not everybody um, has got that capacity. We do have the Sahel, you know, that is really very dry, the desert countries um, in Southern Africa. Here, we, we do produce uh, a lot of wheat, maize, especially South Africa exports uh, to Southern Africa countries like Zambia and Zimbabwe. So, there is a lot of potential to export to other countries, but um, uh, unfortunately, the colonial structure, I would say, of exports are still very much, and even our infrastructure, you know, leads the, the roads from the, from the interior and the agricultural regions lead to the ports rather than um, our intra-African trade. So that's one solution, I think, and then more productivity probably, um, which uh, uh, and and more political stability, all those things need to kick in for for the African continent to be more self sufficient when it comes to to foodstuffs. But yeah, as I said, COVID nineteen was one wake up call, and here is another one. Thank you so much. I mean, you have really, I, I think I could say go gone further to sort of not only highlight the issue but also highlight how we could take advantage of some of the really negative things happening around the world and around us, the continent of Africa, of course, and make it better for the sustainable development of the African people. So now that we've talked about the food, I also want to talk about the oil and gas element because that is another thing at the global level everybody has been concerned about, especially in Europe, and how, you know, how is Europe going to sort of um, win itself from Russia's oil as this war is escalating and their position on it is clear in terms of how they see Russia as the aggressor. 
might there be an opportunity or should I say, is there explicit opportunity for Africa to also gain from this? Of course, taking into account that we also seen a call as part of a climate action, you know, reducing the use of fossil fuel. However, the reality is that fossil fuel continues to be needed and, and used. So I guess my question is whether there are opportunities for African countries to take advantage of the gap given the war and whether some countries are already doing this. Yes, absolutely. I think you've, uh, you know, hit the nail on the head because that is the contradiction that we are facing with now. Um, and many African countries have actually in the climate debate highlighted the fact that we still want to uh, have things like uh, liquid natural gas, for example, to be seen as a transition to clean energy and still needs that, you know, um, recognition uh, of, of, of things like natural gas um, by, by the Europeans and, and other countries in this global climate debate. But to step back to, to Ukraine and, and this war, yes, we've seen countries like Algeria, for example, increase the, its exports uh, of oil and gas to Europe because there's a dire need now. Um, countries like uh, Germany, for example, were heavily dependent on uh, Russian gas and now there's the sanctions. Um, and others, um, you know, other countries have also benefited uh, from the rise in the oil price. Um, there's a potential for, you know, um, here in Southern Africa, we are very much uh, focused on Mozambique, as you, as you said in your introduction. I myself have been writing a lot about that. And the natural gas from Mozambique um, was seen as one of the biggest investments ever on the African continent, 60 billion US dollars of potential investment, of which 20 billion has already been pledged and projects started before this um, insurgency in, in, uh, in northern Mozambique started. Um, so there's huge potential, but... Um, and, and, and it could be that you the Ukraine war would then... Um, lead to many of these projects getting an increased impetus and new dynamic then because, because Europe would realize that it can't remain so dependent on Russia. But at the same time, these projects take years, you know, to get off the ground. So uh, Mozambique can't at this point say, okay, we are now going to increase our production and um, supply Europe, although there is one offshore project uh, led by the Italian company uh, ENI that is actually going to start now in June producing because it's far out at sea. So that might help. But so, so on the short term, yes, there could be benefits. But as you say, um, the world is moving away from fossil fuels. Uh, and so the question now is, uh, should, should European countries increase the demand and continue with the same kind of um, uh, energy sources as they've done before? Or is this going to be a major fast tracking, um, you know, cleaner energy, uh, electric cars, et cetera? That is a big question I think many people are grappling with. And of course, a lot of money is at stake, um, depending on how, how the energy debate is going to go forward. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much. You have really articulated it like more than I expected. And I like that you were able to also share examples of what is already happening and how we're already taking advantage of this, regardless of limitations and of course, um, what could happen and the need for clean energy in the spirit of taking actions on climate change. My other questions relate to, we still have this, I guess you could say political impasse or diplomatic impasse, given that um, the war is still ongoing and there doesn't seem to be a clear African position. And you did highlight this when you started talking, you know, when you talked about the potential divide and whether the AU speaks for Africa or whether it doesn't because the, the countries within the continent doesn't seem to be speaking with one voice. My question are sort of twofold. First, should that even be the aim? I mean, of course we have the AU, but should we also not aim for countries to sort of have the sovereign rights to represent their views, even when it does not always align with the overall view of the African Union? That's the first question. The yeah. second question then is, if we should all aim to speak in one voice, is that even attainable, given that we have like 54, 55 countries, if you include Western Sahara, is that even possible in today's world, given the diversity of region, ethnicity, religion, and the, you know, the complexity of everything else, which you are more familiar with than I am? Yes, I mean, the original intention of the founding fathers of the uh, African Union, the OAU in 1963, was certainly African integration, that there would be solidarity, that Africa would speak in one voice as uh, together with the global south, uh, you know, in its relations with uh, former colonial powers. And this sense of African integration, I think over the years and, and the decades have changed a lot. And when the African Union was created, there was again that sense that, you know, we will um, also rely on the heavyweight countries to form the Peace and Security Council, Nigeria, South Africa, uh, Egypt, you know, those countries, strong uh, economies, Ethiopia, and so on, to to forge common positions because, I mean, you have very strong big countries that can, that has a lot of clout and weight, but then you have a plethora of very small countries. The idea was for them to be part of a bigger uh, united Africa would serve their interests better. But as you've just said, um, the reality of it is we have this di diverse continent, 54 countries, 55 member states of the African Union together with Western Sahara, which is a, uh, I would say, a government in exile. And so we are 55 member states of the African Union. To speak with one voice, we can on certain issues like climate change or, but even then, you know, countries have their various interests. Um, migration, for example, is something I think that there's more or less consensus about, one, you know, wanting to manage migration differently and so on. Um, so, so moving from the ideal to the reality, I think that that is where the problem comes in. Um, and uh, yes, we, 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 the African Union has moved through a lot of challenges and Eras, I would say, and maybe at this point, what we're seeing is 
regions like West Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa, increasingly almost becoming self-sufficient and getting to common positions or even uh, trade regimes amongst themselves, which threatens in a way this um, ideal of African unity. And the African Union Commission in Addis Ababa also has to step up to the plate to become more efficient, to show African citizens that it really is worthwhile investing, that it serves, you know, the continent in, in various ways, bringing peace, um, ensuring, supporting, you know, intra-African trade. It has done quite a lot on COVID-19, trying to make sure smaller countries can benefit from Africa's bigger negotiating power when it comes to buying, you know, PPEs and so on. Um, but, but uh, yeah, the, the issues of foreign policy, like where do we stand on... Um, China, the US, Russia, now with this, with Ukraine and the debates within the UN, it's, it has just shown that we're still quite far away from, from that united position. I mean, the African Union as an institution, I think you alluded to that, is that it's not, it's not the European Union. It's not, it hasn't got any legal bearing. The AU can't impose its um, decisions on any African state, it's uh, intergovernmental organization. So no African state has ceded any sovereignty to the AU, like, um, you know, France or Germany would to the EU. So um, it, it remains an ideal. <laughs> and it also, you know, it, it depends on so many things and whether African citizens really want to buy into that ideal or whether they see it's their interest rather to to go it alone or to only to work rather with the neighbors immediate neighbors rather than this big entity um, sitting in Addis Ababa basically. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your detailed response and the fact that you were able to go back to the OAU and and then moving forward, I guess people could also say, or one or the listeners could also reflect on the initial agenda of the OAU, which was centered around African independence and you know emancipating African countries from the clutches of the colonial masters and whether that aligns with the current reality, which is why we now have the African Union. However, regardless of the limitations that you've highlighted in terms of the complexity of being able to speak with one voice, I wonder if you have any recommendations on what the continent must do differently, because the reality is that it puts us at an advantage if we can have or appear to have a coherent voice when it comes to trade, when it comes to politics or anything else. Are there solutions, are there recommendations on what the continent must do differently to get to that ideal? Yes, I think um, there, there are many things that uh, African leaders definitely can do and governments when it comes to implementing resolutions that they take every year, twice a year when they meet. Um, they make a lot of decisions on, on, for example, you know, peace efforts, on um, governance, 
We are grappling at the moment with this whole issue of coup d'etats, unconstitutional change of government. The AU has many times adopted, um, for example, the African Charter on Democracy and Elections, uh, which includes things like, you know, if you have free and fair elections, then heads of state can't just come around and say, oh, we can have a referendum scrapping term limits so that I can stay in power for 30 years. And then those referendums are not free and fair. And then, you know, you don't have good governance. So the, those the, the decisions are there, the resolutions are there, but they're not being implemented. So you need um, countries to take responsibility or take that seriously. But that is that depends so much on you know who is in power in a particular country, but specifically big countries like Nigeria or South Africa, influential countries. Uh, you know when 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 the OAU uh, um, was transformed into the AU, it was through partnerships uh, by, uh, as I said, South Africa, Nigeria. Um, uh, Algeria, Senegal, Egypt, those were the countries that drove with, with Ethiopia. Those leaders kind of regularly met, um, saw eye to eye on many issues, decided what is good for the continent and kind of drive those agendas. We don't really see it. Um, you, you know, many countries are grappling with their own issues. They're very inward looking. They've got their own um, political orientation. So so at the level of, I would say, um, you know, governments, there is, there's really a lot that can be done. But uh, African citizens, ironically, I think, while, while we are having this dissonance and, and lack of cooperation, there's probably more cooperation at the level of civil society groups, even, you know, when it comes to culture and, and trade and so on. So, um, on another level, then um, we do see more cooperation. And I think even the fact that we've now all online, you know, <laughs> uh, we're all talking to one another on various platforms all the time. Um, you have the youth, you have, um, uh, you know, civil society organizations um, working for freedom of speech, governance, etc. those dynamics ultimately will push the governments to work towards more a greater African unity. They, the, the governments sometimes are you know counterproductive. They try and prevent people from uh, exercising uh, freedom of speech and you know connecting with one another. but, I think that's a positive dynamic that is not going to go away, that citizens are connecting with one another, you know, on so many, so many platforms. But you somehow, because we're dealing with institutions like the UN, like the AU, you do need the governments on board. Uh, if you want to fast track it, definitely they need to be on board. Thank you so much. I mean, I I really have learned something. Obviously, this conversation started from wanting to hear more about your work and genuinely curious about how the conflict in Ukraine affects the African continent. But I've ended up learning beyond the theme of you know this topic, and I'm sure our, our listeners will feel the same way. Learning about African Union free trade agreements, learning about AU and the transition or AU and the transition to AU 
learning about the complexities of politics and decision-making on the continent. And I want to thank you so much for that. I'm wondered whether, I mean, you have any further reflection for um, our listeners and whether there's something you're working on that we need to keep an eye on, especially our listeners might also be in interested in these things. Where can we actually find you online, for example? Thank you very much. Yes, um, online, the ISS website, issafrica.org, has got so many uh, different articles. We have online events. We just had one um, that I organized with my colleagues on reconstruction in Mozambique um, last Thursday. And all those events, if you just click on them, you can re uh, visit it and listen to the debate again. Um, so uh, we are we are working on many aspects, I would say, of Africa's global partnerships also um, with some of my colleagues who look at Africa, Russia, Africa, the US, etc. And from time to time, publish articles. So if you just go to issafrica.org, there are, I mean, my articles and those of my colleagues are there. We have offices in Addis Ababa, a big office that I also work with. And then we have a big office in Dakar with um, smaller offices in Bamako, um, Jamena, um, looking at the, you know, the insecurity there in the Sahel. And then obviously our headquarters here in Pretoria, there's another office in Nairobi. So um, there is really a lot out there if, um, if anybody's interested in some analysis, you know, on these things. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And, and to our listeners, I want to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sticking around. And we look forward to, to sharing insight with our guests in future um, episodes. Thank you. And thanks again, Lizzo, for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you.